0: This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our StrikeTape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape.
1: Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall.
0: I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running.
1: Great boy, busy week in wind turbines again. COVID-19 is having uh, an effect on everything. Uh, Just trying to follow all the news is coming in. It's almost difficult to keep track of all the changes that are happening now in the wind turbine industry. So uh, let's get to it. I mean, big, big, big changes all over the place. Uh, You know, we're seeing all kinds of push towards uh, offshore wind turbines. And I think that's driving a lot of the management changes that are happening. It's also causing a lot of restructuring to happen. And boy, oh boy, Uh, (laughs) talk about chaotic. We're in it right now.
0: Yeah. So we're going to jump into news in a second, but so let's talk about this new piece of tech that has kind of been interesting. So we talked about concrete, um, wind turbine towers in the last uh, couple episodes, specifically yeah. the, uh, 3d printing. But now they're talking yeah. a little bit about segmented wind turbine towers as being potentially the, the lowest cost alternative for mm-hmm. when they get really, really tall, which is obviously like in everyone's future. So we're sure talking about hub, hub heights above 100 meters, um, well, well above that, more like 200, 200 <laughs> plus meters. But obviously, there's a, a thousand big, meters. Yeah, yeah, well, there's a big problem when you know <laughs> they get above 100 meters because transportation gets really difficult. So, um, what do you think of these segmented? So the segmented tower technology is essentially. You know having segments where you're going to bolt them together and they're going to be easier right. to ship and you got to assemble them but there's going to yeah. be much more engineering and and fasteners and a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of different like i said engineering mm-hmm. to make these work but how do you feel yeah. about this uh is it going to be viable does that make the most sense
1: makes the most sense because you can be able to transport it the biggest problem in wind turbines right now is the ability to transport from factory to site and That's why you see this big push of factories getting shoved toward the shorelines because the wind turbines are getting so much bigger that they need to be going by by boat. No longer can we just move them on truck. Uh, And when that happens, you got to think of ways that you can start moving these things on truck reasonably uh, because the weights go up too. So you have a kind of a combinational problem of the sizes get big and the weights get so heavy that they can't really put them on a road. So you got to figure out ways to reduce the overall size of each of the pieces and then get them on a truck or a ship so it's it's a uh real real unique engineering problem uh, just seeing this articles more recent articles about uh, building them in segments like the, the one up in sweden where they're building it out of wood which means they're building it in segments and then now we're talking about basically building metal sections that get bolted together much like most other metal buildings and structures in the world are built It's sort of about time, you know, (laughs) we're going to get to the size where we're going to need to bolt things together. Good.
0: Yeah. So apparently the U.S. right now doesn't really have a a commercially viable solution for steel towers above 140 meters. Right. So that's where this starts to come in. Um, Yeah. It looks like one company is going to be offering this. But, yeah, I mean, that's getting really, really tall. So, I mean, what are some of the engineering challenges of of things when they get that high? Because obviously the base has got to get wider and wider as they go up. Mm. But what, what other engineering um, difficulties do you foresee with all this?
1: Well, it's just the weight, making sure that the the ground can handle the weight you're about to put onto it and how big the pad is you're going to pour so that this turbine doesn't tip over. And then uh, once—that's <laughs> that, not easy, by the way. So there are places you will not be able to put some of these wind turbines because the ground can't support it. And once you do find that land or, and you can make that foundation— Build a foundation in it. Then you got to figure out how to get this thing up and moving. When you start building segmented large segmented pieces of metal, which since steel, what we're talking about here, uh, the key to all this is fasteners. Making sure you have strong enough fasteners and that the fasteners are installed properly and the hole sizes are right, and that the fasteners are tightened and they remain tightened for the lifetime. That's where that's where you can run into trouble on any uh, construction project where. Uh, fasteners are used because if if it's a wrong fastener, if the fastener isn't the right hadn't have the right strength, or the hole is or misaligned, or (laughs) for a myriad of different reasons, there's things that can go wrong on fasteners, that's that's where the trouble lies because if you're if you're highly loading, and which I'm sure we're gonna be doing, highly loading fasteners uh, in these construction uh, designs, we got to be really careful that we're doing that right, and we're we're actually getting the fasteners installed properly. That's where the weak spot's going to be, and it's even the weak spot today. You see a lot of of uh, uh, talk and and recertification of bolt tightening on wind turbines because as things settle, they tend to get loose as everything kind of. Gets to a normal state, even on your car, and it's the same thing on your car or an airplane or yeah. motorcycle. You drive it for a while, you don't you find a couple of nuts loose? like, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> that shouldn't happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> like your wheel wheel lugs. <laughs> you just go around and check those once in a while. Yeah, same thing. It's going to be it's it's going to be a technical challenge because you think about the number of turbines that are going to go up over the next several years and how massive they're going to be. You need trained people to go do that. That's not. A rookie thing, like someone like me, get just walk up, so banging it and bolts and tightening them. You need some training there to make sure it's done right. And uh, so there's going to be some highly paid, skilled jobs coming up in the future, building these segmented wind turbine towers.
0: Yeah, I mean that's it's interesting, and you start to wonder how high they're going to go because they're just trying to reach better wind. But at the end of the day, I mean, at what point would you? Think they're going to start to interfere with aircraft, or is there like a going to be an upward limit where they're going to, or is that not really an issue going forward?
1: Well, they sort of do right now. And then, in, in the fact that uh, there's navigation lights, red lights that are put on top of them when they're around anywhere near an airport so that airplanes don't fly into them. And I remember flying around Kansas, this is. Uh, Oh, it's probably 20 years ago now. Uh, and, and there are wind turbines back in Kansas 20 years ago. And same thing for like antenna towers. It's the same thing as antenna towers. And until you get to about antenna tower height, that's that's where the limits are going to start to be drawn, I think. But if, and like in the UK where, and a lot of other European countries where they're making wind a priority, then what you do to the airplanes, you just tell them not to fly, not to fly in those areas, just treat them as mountains. That's essentially what they'll do: is treat them like high terrain, hmm. and so you don't fly around them. What, and they'll mark them off. And in today's world, you can do that because there's so much computer technology and aircraft where they where things are marked, like uh, the synthetic uh, vision systems and all those things that are in aircraft today, where it simulates the ground and every antenna tower and wind turbine or show up in those things. So it isn't like the pilots don't know; they they will. So I don't, I really don't know if there's a really a peak limit. Besides, when we start to get to really what the strength of materials can handle, uh, that's going to be found out pretty fast because Siemens and GE and everybody for that matter investus are driving towards larger and larger turbines because it just makes financial sense to go do that. And at some point, we're going to reach that limit, and <laughs> we'll know when we hit it because things will start breaking. So that's usually how we figure it out yeah and
0: I mean do you think that they might use this technology with like a hybrid concrete base or I assume yeah. like hybrid models always seem like the best way to go because you end up getting the best of obviously both both mm-hmm. styles or you know whatever I mean is that right what you think as far as uh, I, yeah longevity from an uh
1: you know longevity is a different thing uh, cost and efficiency are usually hybrids for most anything uh, because uh, every ever there's always trade offs in every piece part that you're going to build. And as an en- and on the engineering side, you're looking at the cost to make the part, what the material cost is, what the if you're doing some special machining, that adds up. And do you really want to put that much? expensive to a part or you want to just make it out of something cheaper yeah that's going to happen all the time and and, and what seems to happen is this really unique cycle of one engineering team will put out uh what they consider the the, the forefront of technology and then that'll get batted around a little bit and some people will adapt to it some people won't and then they get to the next stage so it's just like this constant evolution of engineering design based on success of the previous designs so if it proves itself out everybody will start running down that pathway because they're going to do the math and figure out like, okay, yeah, these guys actually did their homework or they got some sort of unique twist or thought process on this that we didn't think about before. And then everybody rushes to fill the void. And that's how we get to, you know, wind turbines that are 15 megawatts and up is that we're going to start figuring out how to do those things. Somebody's going to start breaking some barriers and, you know, uh, more traffic this week seeing, Much larger numbers in wind turbines, you're like, man, is that even possible? Maybe, maybe. And we're going to need a whole bunch of engineers to figure it out and a bunch of technicians to make these things happen. I just don't know if anybody's got a really solid solution. And it's probably going to depend in part by where the wind turbines are located at and the cost of materials locally because these things are getting so massive that you're practically building them on site. You're going to be putting a factory somewhere near where these farms are going to be uh, because you just can't ship anything anymore.
0: All right, so we're going to transition uh, into our new segment here. So, a couple of things coming out of uh, Siemens Gamesa, or what's soon to be named uh, Gamesa Energy. So, obviously, they have a new CEO that's about a couple of weeks now. They've uh, replaced Marcus Tack with. Um, Someone from within the company, Andreas Nowen, who's been, he was the head of the offshore divisions, now promoted to CEO. So, and, and Siemens Gamesa is, is looking for, I guess, a big change as they've had some struggles in the the recent uh, financial yep. sector. But um, how do you feel about this move and what do you see from from Siemens Gamesa moving forward?
1: Well, I think the, the word on the street about Siemens Gamesa has been for the last couple of years is that they've... Really struggled to get new product out, and some of the uh, new sites that they had, uh, particularly onshore, were problematic for them. And there's so many pieces to being successful in a wind turbine company because it's not about just building the wind turbine; it's about getting it to the location, getting it up and running, and you're sort of involved in all that. And versus like in an automotive sector where you make the car and once it goes out the door, you sell the car and you, and, and you hope you never see it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not how the wind turbine market works. It's much more of an industrial thing. Like, like building a building, right? You build a building in the hope that you get tenants and until you rent that thing out or lease it all out, you're still on the hook for it. It's kind of like that. Uh, and so it, if you think about it, you have such a breadth of knowledge that you have to deal with, um, markets, uh, Construction, manufacturing, unions, shipping, uh, contract negotiations, sales, uh, dealing with uh, different countries and regulations around the world, you're getting bombarded from all sides. That's a very unique skill set for any CEO to have. And I don't know if you can really even be successful in that role the way it is defined today, because what you're seeing is this sort of consolidation in the marketplace where the wind turbine companies 20 years ago, there's a whole lot more of them, and they're kind of spread around a lot. There's been a consolidation in the industry, and now that's forced a lot of responsibility on the... Uh, sort of the upper levels of the management chain to uh, try to deal with this plethora of issues in which they may not be experts in based on what their previous background was. And I don't know, <laughs> you know, it may, it almost when you see the the, the shifting, uh, sh- the shuffling of management chairs in any large organization like that, you say, well, what's going to change, right? Yeah. I don't know. What's going to change? Beats me, no one said it, and which is one of the most frustrating things about these news releases like, "Oh, we've replaced CTO such and such with this new person who came up through marketing blah 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 blah." Now oh, that's awesome, right? But <laughs> why is that going to why is that going to help? I'm curious how that's going to change the 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 fact that you're getting crunched on price and you got global competitors and you've got this COVID nineteen thing happened and all the other things that are going on. What's this new person gonna bring to the table that the last one didn't? I don't I don't know. And and as sort of a purveyor of large corporations, because we, you know, we deal with aircraft, and and our company deals with aircraft and wind turbine manufacturers all the time. Uh, they each have, I will say, they each have their own personality, and I, I really don't see a lot of change in those personalities in the corporate personality based on the CEO. You haven't seen a lot of change. Like you can't you can't name the last five Boeing CEOs. You couldn't name the last. Yeah. uh Vesta ceos right you just don't know <laughs> because they, they each have their own kind corporate personality it's based upon all kinds of factors and it's hard for one person to really drive change and when you do see someone like that they really stand out and um i i i'm struggling to think that any kind of swap out in management right now is going to make a huge difference on stock price
0: yeah, well, and you start to see this with the uh, the sports world as well, you know, whether it's baseball or football, when, you know, the team's been running poorly, they, mm. uh, you know, the manager's got to go. Like, he's the, the scapegoat and the head's got to roll. Yeah. But it's often not clear. It's like, all right, we got a new manager. Well, we still have all the same players and they were the ones on the field, you know, like these corporations still have their same 1,500 employees mm. plus or minus and all the systems that are in place. I mean, you can't just yeah. uproot it and throw it all away and and they're responsible nope. in large part for you know getting the work done and turning you know getting products out to market so yeah you wonder at times whether it's just like look it's just been bad for too long like you just gotta go like it just has to happen It's almost like it's ceremonial right and right <laughs> and not as much because there are especially times you know you and i are both baseball fans there are just times when you're like yeah. i just don't feel like this is the manager's fault I mean, just like his players just kind of stunk, you know, and and what was his personality going to do and what was a lineup change going to do when they just weren't getting the job done on the field? You know, and I think there's some probably some some analog there to the uh, the business world, not completely, because the CEO could Mm -hmm. come in and say, hey, we're steering the ship in a completely different direction and we're allocating money in the wrong places and. We've got systems yeah. that are broken, like maybe, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure a lot more that can change by than in like a, just a sports team in a year. But, but yeah, I'm with you. It's, it's hard to know what, um, whether it's just a ceremonial head, head change, head rolling, or if it's really going to be, or how long they expect for it to take too. I think it's the other thing. Cause sometimes you come in you're like, Hey, we need major three, four, five years before we get where we want to go rather mm-hmm. than just like, this that's is right. going to turn, turn around right away. Right. Yeah, and spe- so speaking of which, uh Suze alone has successfully completed their debt restructuring. Um, so, Alan, you're you're pretty
1: optimistic about this. I think they're going to come out of it just fine. Uh, they have technology. They have uh, uh, they have market demand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sales fixes everything, and they just got to sell. You just got to sell and i think they're in a unique position to sell because my gut tells me and what market forces are telling me is that they'll have a financial advantage on some level because the cost the cost to produce wind turbines in their marketplace it should be less so as long as they don't get into some sort of trade war, and it sounds like like India, China are starting to get into a little bit of a trade war, which I'm not sure Suslan is super happy about right now, uh they gotta they're gonna be able to stay in the marketplace. And as as there are just fewer players, at some point it's just like uh the UK government this week buying a, that satellite company, like what? what in the world is going on there at some point we get to the place where these companies become part of the national infrastructure and they can't be lost and the governments will pour money into them to keep them alive and we've seen that with airbus we saw it with boeing on the aircraft side we've seen it with other aircraft manufacturers over time uh we've we've seen it in wind turbines uh in the states and in europe for a while I don't see that going away. So if you happen to be, the, the lone player in your country and, and some politician or a group of politicians or a party thinks it's to their vital national interest to have you there, it will be possible. Because at some point, it's all about money and loans and being able to take out the loans so you keep the thing running. I think they're going to be okay. Their stock price has bounced around a lot lately. It to starting to gain a little bit of a firmer ground, at least this week. And... Again, we're getting back to that culture thing. Do they have the culture in place to be successful going forward? They haven't in the past, but Mm -hmm. maybe they will now with a little more cash uh, because in lieu of sales, you know, sales is about cash. So getting cash infusions can sometimes get you over the hurdle, but you still have to do the hard work. I'm optimistic hopefully they succeed because they do have unique products.
0: All right, so we're gonna jump into our last segment here and we're gonna talk a little bit about just some interesting lightning news so alan there was this supercharged quote-unquote thunderstorm reaching 1.3 billion volts uh just this <laughs> earlier this spring um so what is where does that rank i mean i think you're gonna to have to kind of start from scratch and give people a, a little bit of a uh a primer on how much <laughs> voltage is in a typical storm, and what a does lot. 1.3 billion mean? I mean, the photo of this is crazy. Over it's in, uh, it was over South Africa.
1: It's in South Africa, right? Um, so it all depends on how much, how large the storm cell is, and how much charge is stored into the cloud. That's what it comes down to, because voltage is just a potential difference between two things. And, you know, I think that the 1.3 billion volts is sort of an estimate based on some other things. But uh, when you have storms of that size, you have real problems. Uh, just because when those storms start to discharge, they're going to discharge violently and usually at high amplitudes. Uh, so from a wind turbine's perspective, particularly in someplace like South Africa, uh, where or in any part of the world that's relatively flat, it doesn't depend where it is, Um, you know, wind turbines are typically the highest object around for the most part. And so when you get wind turbines installed in an environment like the West Coast of Japan or on the mountaintops of Italy, you tend to take a lot of big strikes. And we're, you know, it's 2020, and we're just figuring out, like, thunderstorms have a lot of potential in them. (laughs) Which I always like yeah like didn't we know that before uh do i have to put a number on it to actually feel good about myself i don't think so i think i know that based on the destruction that's happened over the last 200 years and been documented over the last 200 years we know thunderstorms are (laughs) very violent things and i i personally don't care what the voltage is as much as how much destruction and what we need to do to protect ourselves and our particular electrical grid from these kind of big discharges, because in a similar note, there was a discussion about the largest lightning discharge, which seemed to happen. Was it down in Brazil? I think that's where it was, um, where it was about 400 miles, 700 kilometers of uh, a lightning discharge. And if they had some in the Midwest and in the United States too, have been fairly large, like the size of States, like this, like the size of Oklahoma, um, I think Argentina's had a pretty large strike there in terms of size because we have satellites that can can measure these things now. Mm-hmm. You can actually uh, sit, there sit there and go, "Oh yeah, it's actually that long." Um, again, it's one of those values that probably doesn't make any. Who cares, right? Right. In uh, the wind term is in the wind term is it probably does matter because what we're learning now and what we learned over the last couple of years is like it's not like you have one lightning strike and then the storm builds up charge again and you have another lightning strike. It's not sort of the cyclical charge discharge cycle that thunderstorms are involved with in terms of lightning strikes. That's not the case at all. If you think about these storms and the size of these storms, there's electrical charge distributed all over them. So if the storm is the size of, say the storm is 300 miles across, that means there's charged 300 miles across. That means a discharge somewhere in that storm probably caused a cascade of other discharges to happen in those in those clouds. And in the wind turbine industry, what we're seeing is that one discharge is causing lightning, dis- lightning strikes to a bunch of wind turbines. So it's not even necessarily that the, the wind turbines are taking that first strike as, as much as they're maybe taking subsequent strikes from a discharge that happened 100 miles away that is a game changer in terms of what we think about lightning protection on uh, yeah. turbines. Totally changes the uh, the whole event. Well, essentially it goes like this, we're going to get struck a heck of a lot more than we thought we are. And I know I know they've had these little magnetic card readers in the wind turbines for a long time that measure the peak amplitude of lightning strikes, but didn't tell you the quantity, necessarily the quantity of lightning strikes. And now that we're instrumenting wind turbines, we're kind of getting better sense, like these wind turbines are getting struck quite a bit. Maybe not with huge lightning strikes, but they're getting struck quite often. And if we're designing them, are we designing them properly for that environment? Now, I haven't seen, there hasn't been a lot of uh, papers come out about, um, The results of these instrumented wind turbines which to me is mind-blowing like come on we got to get to the point where some of this data is just general knowledge and that we're helping the industry it's sort of like tesla and the patent thing where tesla just you know elon musk just said i don't care about the patents everybody can use them that's the same thing in, in lightning protection too when we get data we need to be able to share that data so that We have a better marketplace because wind turbines getting struck and going out of service hurts the wind turbine industry. It doesn't hurt a particular manufacturer necessarily. It it gives the whole industry a black eye. And And we have to think slightly bigger than that right now, because if we really want to have some sort of green energy source, reliable green energy source, then we need to know what those lightning strikes look like and how we're going to should be designing for them.
0: All right, well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end it's no secret lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime this damage is preventable with our easy to install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades our incredible engineering build quality materials and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions and we've got the research to prove it if you're tired of constant downtime we can help Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.